The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Well, uh, to think about work makes me think of my very first job. When I was a teenager, the age of 16, I worked as a Little League Baseball umpire. Why is that funny? (laughs) I was a Little League Baseball, so I was part umpire and part mediator between crazed parents and angry coaches and kids who just wanted to have a good time. And I was this Little League umpire, and back then, things were very simple at the age of 16. I wanted some spending money, I wanted new video games, I wanted to go and get some food like McDonald's with my friends. And so that's why I had a job at the age of 16. Maybe if you could think back with me for your first job, maybe you were saving up or paying for college or trade school, or maybe you wanted to just have some spending money, or maybe you were trying to move out or try to get a car or whatever it might be, that first season of your life where you had that first job. Now, as time moves on, hopefully your reasoning or purpose for having work matures, right? At the base level, a job never stops being a means of providing. It's a good thing to work and earn a living and be able to provide for our families and have food to eat, clothes to wear. That's a good thing. But over time, as humans, we crave for something more when it comes to work. We want our work to do more for us than just simply be a means to put food on the table. We want it to have some significance to it. And I think there's a couple reasons why. I just looked up these statistics this past week. Just consider the sheer time that the average person will spend at work in their lifetime. The average American will spend some 90,000 hours of their lives at work. 90,000 hours of their life. And and if all that is, is just, this is just my way of earning money, well, then there's going to be some seasons where it's just real empty, where you'll feel like your work is pointless where you'll feel like the things that you're spending these 90,000 hours, you're one third of your Monday through Friday for some of us doing, or if you're on shift work, working 12 hour shifts or 24 hour shifts, if all it is, is it's just a means to getting a paycheck at the end, it could feel real dry. And I think there are some people who are listening who would say, yeah, that's where I'm at. I just feel like my, my job, it feels dull. It feels like I have to do it just because I need to provide for my family, but if I'm honest, that's the extent to the purpose I feel. Uh, In 2021, many uh, observers, sociologists, people started describing that year in particular after the COVID pandemic as the year of the great resignation. Some 47 million Americans resigned from their positions voluntarily and either changed careers, started to rethink their work-life balance, started to ask those bigger purpose questions. Why am I doing this? Is this what I want to spend the majority of my life doing? You see, this question of purpose when it comes to work, it's significant. And what we're going to discover here in a moment, we're going to look at Genesis 41, is that God wants something for you with your work. There is a purpose that God wants you to tap into, whether you are a stay-at-home parent and your work is giving yourself to your family and children, whether your work is in an office building, in a fire department, in a classroom, in a home office, whatever that looks like, God has a purpose for you that he wants you to connect to that brings satisfaction, that brings a sense of calling and meaning 
to the actual things you do and spend your time with. And so that's what we're going to explore as we look at Genesis chapter 41. And to my friends here who maybe you're discouraged, you're in a season of discouragement, my hope is that this will inspire you and encourage you. So Genesis 41, uh, before we dig into the text, let me catch us up with where we are. We're jumping in really right in the middle of quite a story. Uh, we've been introduced into this character named Joseph. A few weeks ago, we started looking at the trajectory of his life. And just to quickly give a recap, Joseph is this man who has a promise over his life. Joseph is the great-grandson of a man named Abraham. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But Joseph and his family have this promise over their lives. They are God's chosen people and his vehicle of bringing blessing to the nations. But Joseph's family, his brothers in particular, they are jealous of him and envious of him. And after Joseph has these dreams that his brothers don't like, his brothers throw him into a pit and then sell him as a slave. And he's taken away into Egypt. And Joseph is in the house of an Egyptian official named Potiphar, and he's working there as a slave against his will. And yet we're told God is with Joseph there. God blesses Joseph there and gives him favor there. And yet even as things are going as well as they can, as he's there as a slave against his will, he's falsely accused. Things start tumbling down again for Joseph, and he's put in prison for something he did not do. And while he's in prison, we're told in Genesis that God was with Joseph. And as he's there, two officials from Pharaoh's court in Egypt, Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, a cupbearer and a baker from Pharaoh's court end up in prison. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams. They have these troubling dreams. They share it with Joseph. Joseph reveals the dreams. Both dreams come to pass. And for one of them, the cupbearer, He's returned and restored back to his office in Pharaoh's court. And Joseph said to the cupbearer, please remember me when you go back to see Pharaoh. Longing to just escape prison, wanting to get out. But when he gets there, the cupbearer, we're told, forgets Joseph. Two years pass. Joseph is still in jail. And now Pharaoh who is perhaps the most influential, powerful person in the world at the time, arguably, Pharaoh has dreams. And so look at what happens after Pharaoh is troubled by these dreams. He sends for all of his uh, magicians that are in Egypt who practice their methods of dream interpretation, and none of them can interpret what's happening in his dreams. The cupbearer remembers Joseph and says, hey, I knew a guy who interpreted my dreams. And so here's what it says, Genesis 41, picking up in verse 14. Look at it with me. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. 
But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Poor cows, okay? Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears of grain growing on one stalk, full and good. Uh, Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. These two dreams that Pharaoh has, if you know the story, if you could just kind of try and listen to it with some fresh ears for a moment, you've got seven plump cows, love that adjective, seven plump cows, okay, and they're healthy, they're full, okay, looks like they fed on grain, they're ready to go, and then you've got these seven thin, ugly cows, and the ugly cows that are thin and weak, frail, eat up the seven thick cows, and yet they don't get plump, they stay thin and ugly. And then you have basically the same thing happen with these ears of grain. Okay, if you're listening to this story with fresh ears, you've never heard of it. I'm with Pharaoh, I'm confused, I have no idea what's going on here. Joseph is very clear, interpretations belong to God. It's not in me, I'm not the one who can interpret this. This is God's to reveal. And so listen with me, continue on. Pick it back up with me in verse, uh, verse 25, and we're going to read Joseph interpret the dreams. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So God reveals the interpretation to Joseph And the interpretation is essentially this. There's going to come seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. There's going to be abundance. There's going to be fruit and crops like you've never experienced before. It's going to be incredible. But it's going to be followed by seven years of famine where there will be a complete devastation on the land. There will be no harvest. And so he reveals this to Pharaoh. Now, mind you, think about Joseph's experience with Egypt in general and Pharaoh's rule in particular. Joseph has no attachment to Pharaoh or Egypt. I mean, Joseph is of the line of Abraham. He's a Hebrew man 
whose experience in Egypt was that of a slave and then a prisoner who's been wrongfully accused and forgotten. And here he's brought in front of the most important man in the land. And Joseph, God reveals the dream to him and he shares it with Pharaoh. And then did you catch this? Not only does Joseph reveal to him what his dream means, but Joseph offers him a plan. He said, there's gonna be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, so here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. You need to appoint a wise and discerning man to be a ruler over the land of Egypt and appoint overseers under this leader so that they can lead during the time of plenty and preserve and save enough to get you through the season of famine. Joseph's offering up his, hey, here's how you could approach it. Well, how's Pharaoh gonna respond? We'll wrap up this section of the story. If you continue with me, verse 37. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, listen to this. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before Joseph, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is blown away by Joseph's wisdom and insight. And his observation is, where can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? He sees Joseph's wisdom and he marvels at it. And he says, Joseph, I'm going with you. You're my guy. And he appoints Joseph to be leader over the people during their years of plenty and their years of famine to preserve life. He gives him authority. He gives him his signet ring. He clothes him in fresh clothes. He's no longer in prisoner's shabby clothes anymore. He's given authority and influence in Egypt. To a degree that's remarkable, seemingly overnight, everything has changed for Joseph. And so he says, I'm going to make you this uh, person. You're going to be the one who rules under me. As the story unfolds, the years of plenty come and they do just what Joseph said to do. They take a fifth of the produce from the land. They set it aside to prepare for the years of famine. And they build these store cities where they stock up on food in preparation for what's to come. And just think about this for a moment. That in itself is an act of faith. If things are going really, really well, I mean, things are just going over the top well. And here's this guy who says, hey, listen, seven years of famine are coming. As an act of faith, they're setting this food aside. And sure enough, seven years later, the harvest ceases. The land is scarce. And it's not just in Egypt, the surrounding nations start to feel the economic implications of this famine and people are going hungry for food. And guess who comes to Egypt 
looking for food because they hear word there's food in Egypt. Joseph's brothers, the ones who threw him in the pit, the ones who sold him out as a slave, who betrayed Joseph in the most heinous way, they come knocking on Joseph's door, having no idea that it's Joseph that's positioned by God and behind the whole reason why there's food in Egypt during this famine. And these brothers are in this position. They're about to find out. We'll look, skip ahead with me, Genesis 45. We're going to see what happens really in one of the climax moments of this story as these desperate brothers are begging for food and they're about to find out that it's Joseph, that their life is literally in his hands. Genesis 45, starting in verse three. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Mind you, over a decade has passed since they sold him out as a slave. Joseph is in the dark about his own dad. They're dismayed at his presence. They're terrified. They're realizing their life, their future is in the hands of the brother they betrayed. Verse four, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. I wonder if they were nervous. They came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be, be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Wait a minute. I thought his brothers were the ones who sent him into Egypt. I thought his brothers were the ones who sold him as a slave. They were. But now with the perspective and experience and trust and faith in God's care for his life, Joseph is able to say to his betrayers, God sent me here for this moment. He sent me here to feed the nations. God sent me here position. All the suffering he went through, all the difficulties, he says, God was not absent. So what do we make of this story? What do we learn from Joseph's story of his life at work? We learn about the purpose for work. So here's where, where I want to go. I want to give you just kind of a quick roadmap. Here's where we're going. We're going to talk about God's purpose for work. We're going to contrast that then with the world's purpose for work, and then we're going to get practical. How can we get in step with God's purpose? So first, what is God's purpose for our work that we see here in the story of Joseph? It's the preservation of life and the flourishing of the city. God's purpose for work is the preservation of life and the flourishing of the city. The chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it look like to bring glory to God at work? What does it look like to honor and glorify God in our work? It means to preserve life, to serve the common good, to make the lives of the people around us better. So you see all throughout the story of Joseph's life, everywhere he goes, and he's going not necessarily as a prophet, he's going in, in Potiphar's house and then a prison, and then he goes into Pharaoh's household, he goes as a worker full of wisdom and discernment from God's spirit. And God uses Joseph in that context to preserve life, to help others 
flourish and thrive. Not only were the people in Egypt, their lives impacted by Joseph's obedience and work ethic and faithfulness to God, but the nations around them, including his own family that came and was begging for food and Joseph graciously provided for them. This right here in Genesis 41 is one of the high points and 45, it's one of the high points in the entire story of Genesis. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, he said, Abraham, I am going to choose your family and I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth can be blessed. If you want to think about the big picture story of how the Bible unfolds, God creates human beings in his image. He makes everything good and beautiful and humans rebel. We're in need of redemption. We're in need of forgiveness and restoration to God. And so God sets forth this plan to redeem all of creation and to form a people for, for himself by first selecting one human family, the family of Abraham. And God sets his promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And as you keep reading through Genesis, this family, that an incredible responsibility was just handed to them. An incredible stewardship. The blessing of God to the nations is going to flow through this family. And you read through Genesis and they are a dysfunctional mess. You, you've got people making shady decision. You've got brothers betraying one another, sibling rivalry the whole Jacob and Esau episode, Abraham and Hagar episode. There's so many stories in here where you see, yes, glimpses of faithfulness to God. You see real people with real challenges and struggles seeking to honor God and some incredible high points of faith. And at the same time, you also see some real disturbing instances of human weakness and failure. But here in Genesis 41 through 45, this is like, the high point of the entire book. We look at Joseph's life and it's almost like, okay, it looks like Joseph's doing it. The thing God said through Abraham, all the nations are gonna be blessed. Here you have one of Abraham's great grandchildren who is literally positioned by God to provide life for the, for the nations. And all of this is transpiring in the context of Joseph showing up to work of God working in the day-to-day -day tasks of Joseph's life. There is purpose in the work itself. I think sometimes as Christians, we can, we can have this sense because we have such a high view for evangelism and we, we should. We wanna share the gospel. We wanna invite people to church. We wanna be praying for people. And because we have such a high view of evangelism, sometimes we can think that the actual tasks that I do with my work are pointless if I'm not verbally telling someone about Jesus. And what that shows is we haven't yet connected what the message of Jesus has to say about and brings to bear on the things that we do with our hands and the ways that we approach our time during the week. Uh, it reminds me of when I was in college, I had a public speaking professor. It was a large lecture hall class, one of my largest classes in school, and uh, with a couple hundred students in the room maybe, and I distinctly remember how terribly boring my public speaking professor was. 
He was mechanical. Uh, it, it looked like he, he was like, he just woke up when he showed up to class. Uh, it, it was tough. And here's what was happening. There was a disconnect between his message and the conduct and pattern of his life. Are you following? So what does that make the 200 or so students in the auditorium think about what he has to teach them? It's like, well, I don't know that I'm really interested in what this person has to say about public speaking because I am bored to tears. So what happens when we as followers of Jesus, we haven't yet connected the selfless, humbling message of the gospel to how I actually do the tasks of my job, how I serve and treat my team members, my coworkers, the customers I serve, how I actually engage with my work setting. If that hasn't connected and then we start telling people about Jesus, the people are going to hear us and say, I don't, know, I don't necessarily know that I want to be interested in what you have to say. We, we want to be able to communicate a gospel that doesn't just come to bear on our Sunday life. We want it to communicate a gospel that has something to bear on every aspect of our lives, including work. And what the message of Jesus does for us is it transforms our work into this place where we can offer ourselves for the good of others, where we can lay our lives down as Jesus did for the good of others in whatever small ways and big ways that looks like, whether you are a retail worker, first responder, whether you're in sales, whatever it is that you go to do, whatever that looks like, what is that opportunity to give yourself for the flourishing of the city and the serving of others? Second, let's contrast that with the world's purpose for our work. Contrast that. The world has a different script for your work. And what's interesting is at the beginning of the book of Genesis, Towards the beginning, I should say, in Genesis chapter 11, we see a story that stands in stark contrast with Joseph's story. It's another story of humans at work, and look at the purpose that they state for their work. Look, uh, Genesis 11, starting in verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This is them inventing new technology, no longer just kind of stacking stones, they're making bricks. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This story known as the Tower of Babel contains within it what still is the reality for the world, the culture around us for many of us that the purpose of work is to make a name for yourself. The purpose for work is it's a platform to build your brand. The purpose for work, it's about you demonstrating who you are and letting the people around you know just who you are. It's about building something, a monument to your own greatness, authority, and power. That's what work is. And it looks different for different people. Sometimes it's more dependent on, no, the income that I get from my work produces a certain, certain status that I can show and demonstrate people. For some of us, it's in the work environment itself with the way that peers treat me. I want that kind of attention. I'm going to make a name for myself. It's work turned inward. Now, here's the thing. When we make work a project of identity formation, because that's what, that, that's what that is. I am building my identity based on what I produce, how my 
peers perceive me. That's me forming who I am. There's a glaring weakness that that's exposing, an insecurity in our hearts. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Every Good Endeavor, where he talks about a theology of work. Listen to what he says. He says, the impulse to see your work as a way to make a name for yourself reveals a radical insecurity in your mind and heart, namely that you don't already have a name. You lack an identity that's stable and secure, and so you need your work in order to form an identity. Work as a project of identity formation is exhausting. Work as a project of identity formation is us turning all of what we do and turning it inward on ourselves, proving myself. Proving myself to myself, perhaps, to prove others wrong. All these things that we hear life coaches tell us. This idea of, no, you need to show others just exactly who you are. This is the opposite of the way of Jesus, where he wants our work to be about his name being honored his name being glorified and on display. You see, the gospel of Jesus offers us a very different identity. The gospel of Jesus gives us an identity that is received. You see, like Joseph's brothers, we all come to Jesus, begging and in need. Jesus, like Joseph, has something to offer us that we don't have. See, all of us are in this place where we have something far worse than a famine, where our physical needs are threatened. We are in a spiritual famine where we are, according to Ephesians 2, spiritually dead in our sins. That our rejection of God's good authority over our lives has put us in a position where we are spiritually dead and we come before Jesus in need of something he has and we don't. Jesus is called the son of God. He has sonship. He has righteousness. Jesus has eternal life. Jesus has all this that we don't have, and we are in desperate need of it. And like Joseph's brothers, we are the ones who betrayed him. In the story of Jesus, it's us. We are the ones who nailed him to the cross. We are the ones whose sin put him on that cross. It was our rejection of Jesus. All of humanity together as a collective, all of our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross where he took our guilt upon himself. We're told that God made Jesus to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. But Jesus offers us an even greater forgiveness and provision than what Joseph offered his brothers. Jesus offers eternal life. Jesus offers forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Jesus offers sonship. He offers adoption into the family of God. Not on the basis of you deserving it. Just like Joseph's brothers, they did nothing to deserve Joseph's mercy and kindness. How much greater is the kindness and mercy of Jesus who looks at people who have rebelled and sinned against him and Jesus willingly offers his life he dies on the cross, he rises up from death, and he offers you, invites you to receive as a gift sonship. Receive as a gift the title daughter of the Most High God. That's what Jesus offers us. So vastly different story and script than the world offers us. 
we have a name that's been given to us. We have a name that's secure. We don't need to approach our work in order to make a name for ourselves when we've been given a far greater name than any job could ever produce for us. How many of us feel about the purpose of our work? We, we oftentimes, we get bogged down, disoriented, wondering what, what is all of this for? And when you have Jesus at the center of your life, an identity built on him, you can approach your work saying, it's not about me building my name, I have a name. My failure or success at work can't change it. I'm here to serve the good of others, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Third, third, how do we connect this practically? How do I connect my work to God's purpose? First, uh, write this down. We need to trust in God's providential care for our lives. Trust in God's providential care for our lives. The idea of providence is this idea that God is purposefully working in our lives for his glorious redemptive purposes. Providence is this idea that God is in all of the details. Not a blade of grass withers away apart from God's intentional purpose. Not a hair on your head falls to the ground apart from God's intentional purpose. Joseph looks back on his life and with incredible perspective is able to say with a serious face, God sent me here before you. God was with me in Potiphar's house. He was with me in the prison cell. He was with me in my suffering. He was not abandoning me in the valley. He was with me. And when we have this sense and assurance, God's providential care in our lives, he's with you in whatever struggle you're in, you're able to approach that season in your work life with this sense of, hey, right now this feels difficult, but I believe there's something, God has me here for a reason. This is not wasted. It's not meaningless. It's not arbitrary or random. It's not chance. God has me here as difficult as it might be. And in any moment, things can radically change. At any given moment, things can be completely transformed. And when you walk around with a sense of God's providential care, that lifts you in those seasons of struggle. That helps you when you're feeling like, oh, this, this just feels like drudgery. How do you get that sense of God's care? It means you have to walk with him. It means that you have to speak to him. It means you need time in his word and time with his people to be reminded and encouraged of the reality of his presence with you so that we might be able to say with Joseph, God sent me here. I don't understand it. It was confusing at the time, but I know his providential care, he was in all the details. God has positioned you where you are for a purpose. The way you connect the dots between your work and God's purpose is you have to start with this conviction of God's purpose for you right now. Uh, to the young adults and teenagers in the room, the young adults and teenagers in Cooper City, the temptation I love how my brother-in-law, he, he, Stefan, he puts it like this. We sometimes view that season as a waiting room that one day God can use you. One day you can make an impact. When what God is very clear about in his word is, no, there is purpose right now for you. 
You might not be in your future career right now. You might not be in that place where you feel like you're catching your stride, but don't miss it right now. He is in the details. He's with you. There's purpose there. So don't miss it. Don't shrink back from it. Then second, how do we connect it to God's purpose? We need to posture ourselves as servants. Posture yourself as a servant. Joseph's career trajectory was the trajectory of Jesus. You know, in career, in work life, corporate culture, it's all about posturing yourself, rubbing shoulders with the right people and and getting out ahead and putting yourself out there and all those things. And, And there's a way to do that that I think is honoring to the Lord. But there's a way to do that that's just according to the world's script. And what we see in Joseph is someone who's willing to serve and trust God, that God can exalt him when he sees fit. Jesus told this metaphor about when his followers, he he talks about how when they go to a banquet, don't sit in a high position of honor. Lest someone more important than you come and Jesus says, hey, you, or then the, the person who's running the banquet say to you, hey, you go sit down here in this lowly place. But he says, no, when you enter in, you sit in the lowly place so that you may be asked and invited up. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You give your attention to seeking the good of the people around you, serving their needs. As God opens doors, communicating the gospel of Jesus, you lift the team around you, you serve others, and as you do, Trust God that when he sees fit, he will exalt you. Whatever that looks like. This isn't one of those passages where it's like, this is just us reading a descriptive account of what it looked like for one character. For you, I hope it doesn't mean that you'll end up in prison. Okay? But then again, Joseph is the one who got to rule over Egypt. For all of us, it'll look different. But this posturing as a servant is the line that connects us, the gospel to our work, we are servants for Christ's sake. We wash people's feet, according to Jesus. We're willing to do the work that no one else does because we're not making a name for ourselves. We're lifting up the people around us. Take on the posture of a servant. Watch God start to connect those dots for you in your place. So for many of you, maybe you're thinking, what does this look like in my particular line of work? And what's neat is throughout this series, we've been just capturing some stories of people in our church and what it looks like for them to connect their faith to their work. So I want you to check this video out. So my typical day can vary depending on where we are in this uh, status of a project. So some days I will be meeting with potential users, helping them um, develop a test protocol. Some days I'll be actually constructing and doing hands-on work. So our research is uh, primarily looking at wind hazards. Uh, The overall goal is to make communities more resilient to the wind threats from hurricanes. My usual day looks like I'll wake up usually around 7, I'll get up, I'll pack up the car, make sure I have everything that I need, and I'll go off to work. My work ethic, I would say, is kind of driven by my desire to work as though I'm working unto the Lord and not unto man. What we're doing is studying creation in a way, and so it's cool to be able to get a better understanding of that, and so kind of being mindful of that as we're doing experiments is like 
something that I guess oftentimes I'm in awe of how complex the wind flows can be and how they can affect structures. The way car detailing serves the city, the way I see it, I have some clients that if their wife or husband goes out of town, they'll, they'll have me come clean the car right before they get home so they have a nice clean car to come to. It's something nice that people can have and appreciate. I like to see the people's reaction of the car and how happy they are with it at the end. And I always try to put a smile on people's face and satisfy them. I would say to the person that doesn't feel their job as a calling, just consider that like God has put you there for a reason. And so there's, there, there could be people that you interact with every day, maybe just one interaction, and you may never know the result of that interaction, but it could be life-changing to somebody. God has put you in a position uh, at a specific time, at a specific place, for a specific reason. And so just being mindful of that and looking for opportunities to be a light for Him. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, like what job you have, if you're stocking shelves or busting tables, you always want to do that to the best of your ability because you don't know who's watching and what opportunities can come from that. He's placed you in that role um, in this moment for a reason, and you may not understand it or see it now, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's like useless or it's not impactful. It still can have an impact on somebody else who's watching that and seeing like, oh wow, like this person, you know, it's a small job, but they're really putting their heart into it and doing the best that they can. And that can have an impact on somebody's life and it can have an impact on your life as well. Can we celebrate those two stories? Just neat examples. And so I, I don't know what your work life is like right now. Maybe for you, work is a struggle. Or maybe right now you're, you're, you feel like you're right where you need to be and you're making a difference and you feel fulfilled wherever you're at. What I would say to you and just remind you in closing is you have a name if you're a follower of Jesus. You don't need to work to make a name for yourself. Jesus worked to give you a name. First John chapter three, verse one says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's who you are. You've been given a name, a name that can't be taken away if you are in Christ. And so what might happen in our city, in a, a city that's full of people, many of whom people move down here to make a name for themselves? What would it look like for God's people to enter into those very same office buildings and workplaces with a heart attitude of making the people around them better, of serving the other, of following in the footsteps of Jesus? What might change in our city? That's what we long to be a part of. So would you just... Close your eyes, bow your heads. Let's close in prayer before we continue our time of worship. Let's close in prayer. I want to pray right now for those of you who are here. And in a quiet moment of reflection, you would say, I, I need the forgiveness that Jesus offers. I need what Jesus has. I need eternal life. Maybe you've been living your life to make a name for yourself and you're ready to see that Jesus is the name above all names. And you wanna give your heart to him. You wanna say yes to him. Then right there where you are, I would call you to just 
in a moment of prayer, in your own words to God, would you just call out to him quietly and say, today, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I turn from my sins and I turn to you. Help me to follow you with my life. I give myself to you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving me new life. And then I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters who are here. And, and Lord, they're weary. They're, they're burdened about their work. They feel frustrated. God, would you just recharge them and help them to see the way that their work makes an impact? Lord, I pray for the person who's thinking about career change and, and maybe even a young adult who's thinking about their future. And I pray, Lord God, that you would guide and direct them to have a heart attitude of saying, Lord, given my gifts, abilities, and opportunities, how can I most make an impact for your kingdom with my work? Lord, give us a church that has that kind of heart attitude. Help us to, just like Jimmy and Chris said, help us to approach it with this sense of we do it for you. We thank you for your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if that was you a moment ago that made that decision to put your faith in Jesus as your savior, to say to Jesus, I need you. We want to help you. We want to walk with you in this journey of following after Jesus. And so the best way for us to know how we can serve you is if you would take out your phone, you can go to cityrev.org faith. That link will take you to a page and you could just in a few seconds, fill out a form and we'd love to just know who you are so that we can be praying for you. We would love to give you a Bible if you don't have one, uh, but we would love to come alongside of you in your faith journey. So you could do that, or you can get one of the connection cards that are one of the seat backs in front of you. You can check off the box and says, today I decided to follow Jesus and drop it off at any of the giving boxes on your way out today. Uh, but we're gonna close with the song church as a way for us to end with praise, thanksgiving to the Lord. So would you stand with us? Let's close in our Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.